1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to a brand new season of Sky History's Not What You Thought You Knew. I'm your host, Dr Fern Riddell, and in this episode, we're looking into the legendary Viking warrior Ingunrua, with Professor Judith Yesh, and speaking to bioarchaeologist Professor Rebecca Goland about some of the exciting ways we can find out more about our archaeological finds, as well as the dangers that come when we let personal bias guide our understanding of the past. But before that, it's time to board a Viking longship bound for the British Isles. The seas around Britain and Ireland are dangerous and, legend has it, full of monsters. But between the 8th and 11th centuries, boatloads of tall, blond-haired Scandinavians in horned helmets, armed with axes and clothed in animal fur, braved the crossing to raid and pillage our coasts. We call them the Vikings. Thankfully, our image of these seafaring raiders has moved on somewhat from those old cliches. For starters, we know now that those famous horned helmets were just a bit of theatre created by the Victorians, and in reality the Vikings themselves were a widespread ramshackle binding together of different tribes and clans within a shared culture. They were incredible travellers, and we have evidence of the Vikings reaching as far as the Middle East and North Africa, and even venturing into North America. And although you may have heard of the Vikings, you may not have heard of Ingenrua, the Red Girl, a Viking warrior who led a warship fleet in attacks on Ireland. We know about her thanks to a 10th century text written about a Viking attack on Ireland and from the Viking sagas themselves, such as the 13th century Saga of the Volsungs, where Viking warrior women, also known as shield maidens, were depicting as fighting alongside the men. Now, I love the story of Ingenrua. And I love the image of a confident warlike woman standing on the prow of a ship with her swords and shield ready to go into battle. And she's someone who's really captured our imagination. Viking shield maidens and Viking women as warriors is something we can find in our books and our TV dramas. But I want to know the fact from the fiction and to pick apart the legend of Ingen Who better than an expert in the history of Viking warrior women? I'm joined by Professor Judith Yesh, Professor of Viking Studies at the University of Nottingham. Thank you so much for joining me today, Judith. And I hear congratulations are in order. Haven't you recently had celebrated a new appointment?
2: Well, only just last week I was elected a a fellow of the British Academy, so I'm very pleased about that. That is fantastic. It is, and it's also very appropriate because I don't know if you know the word fellow is actually a borrowing from Old Norse. It's uh, a word from Old Norse fjellagi, when the Vikings got together and put their money together to go on expeditions, Uh, they called each other fjellagar, so I'm quite pleased about that aspect of it.
1: I had no idea. That's fantastic. I think academia probably is a lot like a Viking raid, maybe, sometimes.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> Tell me about it.
1: <laughs> well, I'm so glad you could join us today. And one of the reasons why I'm really excited to talk to you is Inga can you tell us a little bit about her? From my l- limited understanding, she's a legendary Norwegian shield maiden who waged war against Iceland, Denmark, and the British Isles. Is that right, or is that wrong?
2: It's it's a, it's wrong in the sense that there is certainly a, a character called Ingenrua Rua who's mentioned in a variety of Irish sources, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But there's a suggestion that goes back to the 19th century. Scholars tried to link her to another character also mentioned. In, uh, by a Danish author called Saxo Grammaticus that I'll also come back to later. So they've conflated two characters. Um, and I don't think that really holds up.
1: So this sounds to me a lot like what happens when we're talking about women in the past, which is that people have been merged into one to tell what their or their author thinks is a better story. Is that a case? Or is it just accidental?
2: No, I, th- I think it is the case. I think in, in the 19th century, people were just kind of uh, taking all kinds of sources and and mashing them together, really. And I think now we're much more interested in the the value of individual sources and the diversity and difference that different sources uh, reveal to us. Certainly, that's what I'm interested in. So it's a move of going back into the past
1: to find its, well, as close to its reality as we can and unpick
2: the damage that previous authors have done. Uh, very much so uh, but also just trying to understand the past on its own terms rather than on our terms um, that's what I'm particularly keen on we can't completely leave off our modern ways of looking at things uh, that's impossible but I think it, it's it's worth the effort to try and find out um, what the past thought about itself that's such a
1: brilliant idea in in many ways is the past of what it thought about itself because that's the historian's job in many ways. And I think we've, we've forgotten that a lot, that our primary motivation has to be what the people in the past thought, not we, what we thought of them.
2: Well, I would certainly agree with that, yes. <laughs> Particularly when it come, comes to women's history, because women, the lives of women have changed so much over the last thousand years um, that I think we run the danger of imposing our own views on the past.
1: Very true. Very true. It's 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 also surprises us how much we think is modern is not at all. A lot of our modern ideas that's
2: also true are not true.
1: (laughs) So do you think this is two different people?
2: There's uh, the Ingensuwe who's mentioned in Irish sources, and then there's a character called Rusla who's one of quite a few references to warrior women in uh, a work written around 1200 by a Danish cleric in Latin um and she uh, she's called Rusla and the argument was that Rusla was somehow the same name as Ingenrua uh, if Ingen Rua... Doesn't sound very similar? No, it uh, and it's <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't hold up. It's a bit of a false etymology, I think. What's the meaning behind both of those names if we were to translate them into English? Um well Ingenrua means uh, red maiden or red daughter or red girl um and the other one uh, is a name which doesn't mean anything in particular, as far as I know, it's just <laughs> it's just a name, uh, but it doesn't mean red, certainly not. But it, it's a female name. The Ingenruadh in the Irish sources, uh, the earliest source that mentions her is an early 12th century document called the Kogav uh, Gael Re Galov, uh, the War of the Irish with the Foreigners. Um, and it tells a history of Viking invasions of Ireland. And twice in this text, this figure of Ingen-Ruadh is mentioned uh, in the first uh, in a section of the text that ostensibly deals with uh, the, nine, the period from about 920 to 950. So quite a long time before this text is written in the early 12th century. And there's a list of the commanders of the fleets of Vikings that invaded Ireland and this is literally just a list of names most of them are plausibly Scandinavian names in Irish form and at the very end of the list there is this ingen Ruadh, which isn't a name it's you know it's a description so from from that people have deduced that okay there was one fleet commander uh who was female now i have a little private theory about that um in that um there is in the 12th century a Norwegian king who was called Eystein Mela, which means little maiden. And it says in the sources that he was, he was slight. He was not very tall. He had a pretty face, so he's a little bit effeminate. And uh, that's the kind of thing the Vikings did do. They would kind of be rude to people in this way. So I, it's, to me, it's perfectly possible that it's a, a nickname. So you,
1: you think Ingarua is a fabrication, is a complete well, it, it,
2: invention? It, it may not be a complete invention, but we don't know because there is literally this list um, and then the mention of this Ingen Rua, and we're not told anything more about this person. And then the term crops up later on in the text um, and she's said to be the mother of two people who died in the Battle of Clontarf in 1014. Um, and it's a bit of a stretch if from the 930s to be the mother of two men who died in 1014 it's not impossible but it's a, it's a stretch okay uh, and that's literally all the text says about this character uh, and then there're later texts where the legend develops a little bit um so so i think the whole idea of the red maiden as this kind of warrior Viking warrior woman comes from this 19th century conflation of her with Rusla in uh, Saxo Grammaticus. And so is Rusla a real person? No. Or do we think
1: more likely? No, not a real person either.
2: (laughs) Well, Saxo Grammaticus was writing in uh, around the year 1200. He had a lot of sources and he, he wrote a history of Denmark in great detail. So a lot of people are mentioned in that text and some of them probably were real people but again he's writing two or three hundred years after the events he described so we can't really say for certain whether the people he talks about are real women or not but he was obsessed uh with women warriors and if you're familiar with the character Laguerda in the history channels vikings drama series she owes her origins to Saxo. So, um Right down to I um, mean he actually describes a woman with that name going into battle with her flowing hair. now, if you were going to go into battle, would you have flowing <laughs> hair? Probably not, because the enemy could grab your hair and cut your head off very easily
1: I suppose there 's two questions: one, did female shield maidens and Viking warriors as they 're termed in popular culture, did they exist or not, or is this an invention of 12th and 10th and 11th century
2: writers which is fascinating in itself yes I think well Saxo he was writing in Latin and he was very well versed in classical literature and he was on one hand aware of Amazons but he was also he'd also read Virgil's Aeneid in which there is a a female warrior called Camilla and his warrior women seem to be based on her um, so you so this really is is rather than
1: historical reality. This is again author narrative and myth making.
2: Yes, certainly as far as shield maidens go, I've kind of looked into the use of because shield maiden is an English translation of an Old Norse word skald um, which appears quite a lot, and I've looked at uh, a number of texts which use this term, and they all seem ultimately to derive from. Knowledge of Amazons that somehow reaches Scandinavia as early as the eleventh century, but more so in the twelfth century, and they do seem to become fascinated with Amazons, and these uh, shield maidens appear in the kind of texts that, that are called the Fordnaldarsuger, the sagas of ancient times so they're they're set in the period before the Viking age really, um, and they are quite fantastical, um, but they're an interesting mix of. Classical influences and uh, native traditions, because they're they're set in Northern Europe, and that's where you get the shield maidens. So I, I do I would like to suggest that shield maidens are basically ultimately Amazons, and of course there's a lot of discussion wow. about Amazons as well. As to uh, yeah. I noticed Mary Beard said quite firmly on Twitter not that long ago that there were no Amazons.
1: <laughs> um, well, I'm uh, partly devastated. And also fascinated, because I I love the idea that um, female Vikings or female warriors in this period existed, because I I almost feel how could they not? Because we find female soldiers in so many other periods in history. It is. Or women who have wanted to go into battle or to fight or are just as violent and are just as determined to defend or attack what they see as theirs, and I I struggle to to
2: lose faith in that. I don't think you should completely give up your your idea that that, ah. that women could fight human beings or human beings and anything is possible. Um, I think what I'm saying is, first of all, the textual sources don't provide evidence for female warriors. I think it also depends on what you mean by warrior. If you imagine a warrior as a highly trained professional, paid professional, I'm not quite sure that it worked like that. I think in in, in the Viking Age, most men of a certain standing went about armed and were prepared. Uh, to use their weapons. And it's certainly possible that in certain circumstances, women also did so. But I don't think it was a regular thing. I mean, even the archaeologists, I think, are not really saying that there were huge armies of female warriors going out and conquering England. I think you have to kind of disabuse yourself of of that fact. But I, I certainly think it's possible. I also Think that scientists and archaeologists can sometimes get things wrong. We don't know, and, and human bodies are on a spectrum, really. You know, some women are taller and stronger than some men. You know, there's not a kind of barrier between what women are like and what men are like. Um, and I do think Vikings were actually, on one hand, they were very uh, keen on making a distinction between masculinity and femininity, but on the other hand, they were also quite interested in Exploring the instances where that distinction wasn't so easy to make. The other thing that I think should be mentioned in this context are the Valkyries, which yes, um, are not the same as shield maidens. (laughs) Um, Shield maidens are literary figures. Valkyries are supernatural figures in the mythology, and they are also armed women, Um, Mm. but they're not normally seen as fighting. They're there on the battlefield choose the warriors that will go to Valhalla. That's what their name means. It means chooser of the slain. So the best warriors who die in battle are chosen to go to Valhalla in order to prepare for uh, the end of the world in the Ragnarok. So they have a very important function. They're present on the battlefield. They're not normally armed with swords. Uh, To me, the sword is very much the sign of the male warrior. Valkyries had spears, but they also have might have had helmets and mail coats and so on. Mm-hmm. So there is already uh, a gendered aspect to war that females are present, but not quite in the same way as males. But then this this is, uh, they're supernatural, they're mythological. I think they go back quite far back into the Viking Age. And it could be that when the Scandinavians started hearing about Amazons, they kind of conflated them a little bit with, with Valkyries
1: if we see that in viking sagas in even in the mythology in their fantasy in their supernatural in their religious world that we see figures of women doing what we might class to be unfeminine things there has to be or at least i i believe it can't just be fantasy there has to be a reality to that
2: um well i do think that there are a few uh Narratives from various places which describe groups of people under siege, and if you're in that position, that I I think everyone has to contribute to defending the place. Um, There are also what I find quite interesting is uh, several episodes in uh, the sagas of Icelanders in which women feel the need uh, because uh, their male relatives are not taking vengeance for a killing that they feel the need. take vengeance. But what's interesting about those episodes, it always shows women not succeeding. They have a go, uh, but they're they're just not very good at killing people, (laughs) uh, according to these sagas. And so, well, that's perhaps a slightly more realistic view. So yes, I think women could and sometimes did wield weapons. I just don't think they were necessarily or certainly not in large numbers, trained warriors in Viking armies. I think they were present in Viking armies because uh, we can look at the Viking camps at places like Torxi and Repton here in England. Um, but the, the so-called army was a large mobile group of people, some of whom were warriors, but then they needed people to cook for them, um, to Kind of maintain the ships um, to make objects to sell because they were craftspeople and, and they kept themselves going by selling things. And as soon as you have uh, women in a group like that, you're bound to have children as well. So you have know, it's kind of family affair. You
1: know? Yeah, but we see this. We see this with war across across the ages. I mean, it's only been recent, really recently, that um, uh, studies have shown that women had were in the army in uh, at trafalgar they were on the ships that they were loading armory and they were there because they started out as the women who followed the camps to um to help cook to do all the things that were feminine but at the moment the crisis at the moment of war they absolutely picked up whatever was to hand and joined in and i think learning that that is something that has happened that war is not this solely masculine enterprise is incredibly important to us to, to reassess. What should we take away from the stories of Inga
2: Um I meet a, a lot of young women who really want, really desire there to be female warriors in the Viking age. Um, and I'm afraid the word badass appears regularly in these contexts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I perfectly understand why um, many of them are reenactors and there's the reenactors who recreate what they think are traditional Viking gender roles. And then there's the reenactors who, where the the, girl, the women are also allowed to w- uh, train and wield a sword. And I perfectly understand yes, I can... why, you know, which you is might more want, fun. <laughs> why you might want to do yeah. that. And, and that's absolutely fine with me. Um, I just, what I'm, want to be careful about is not letting our kind of modern desires steer uh, the scholarship. I think the scholarship has to kind of step back a little bit. And as I've said, I've I've always said, and regardless of what other people uh, claim I've said, I think it's perfectly possible that there were female warriors in the Viking Age. I just don't think it was common. I don't think it was a regular thing. And I think we have to look very carefully at the evidence because it's really quite a complicated picture. Um, so let's not over romanticize the Viking Age. There's all kinds of reasons not to do that. Um, but let's sell And one more thing, um, I suppose this reflects uh, me as rather a kind of more than middle-aged woman. Why... Should we valorize women in the past by making them behave like men? Why shouldn't we celebrate what women did, um, whatever they did, and let's find out what women actually got up to? Um, That's what I've been trying to find out all my life, and it's it's a very fascinating journey.
1: So far, the mystery of Ingen Rua just seems to get deeper and deeper. Instead of proving she exists, we only seem to have evidence she definitely didn't or at least evidence that you cannot trust writers in the medieval period to tell you the truth about the Vikings. I think what Judith has told us about how the Vikings built their myths, and that potential influence of the classical world of the Romans and the Greeks on the creation of shield maidens in the Viking sagas, is fascinating. It's clearly evident that in the spiritual world of the Vikings, women could be part of a warlike culture, even if they weren't depicted as successful. But let's do that move from fiction to fact again. The Viking world is very different to ours. This is a time when lynx and bear and wolves still roam freely across most of Europe, when men would be part of raiding parties and women needed to protect the homes and families they left behind. I like the fact Judith makes clear that women could wear and use weapons in their everyday lives, as everyone had a role in defending their own home, even if she doesn't see that as evidence of trained women in Viking armies. And if that was the only evidence we have for or against Viking women, I might be tempted to leave the story there. But in recent history, new and exciting archaeological discoveries have put the existence of Viking shield maidens back in the spotlight. In 1878, the archaeologist Jalmar Stolper unearthed an unusual 10th century tomb in the Swedish town of Birka. He documented it nearly a decade later as holding the remains of a renowned warrior. The site was filled with weapons, a spear, sword, shield and two horses, as well as a game board possibly used to map out military strategies. And out of over a thousand Viking tombs identified in Burka, it was just one of two that contained a full set of weaponry. But in 2017, new light was shed on the Burka grave, which challenges centuries-long assumptions about its occupant. And to find out more, I've unearthed the perfect guest. I'm now joined by Professor Rebecca Gowland, bioarchaeologist at the University of Durham. Your job sounds amazing. Can you explain it to me as someone who has no idea about this?
3: I'm an archaeologist and I find out about the past from the skeletal remains of the people who lived there. Um, So instead of looking at buildings or pots, uh, we look at the, the actual physical remains of the people who lived in those buildings or used those pots. A lot of people sort of think of the skeleton as this kind of Um, inert substance but during life our skeleton interacts with our social as well as our physical environment and what we do and the things that we eat and where we live these things all alter the skeleton in in quite subtle ways so it's our job uh, as a bioarchaeologist to try and um, find these little sort of snippets of information from the skeleton that can tell us um, all kinds
1: of information about the person. Historians have often made an awful lot of assumptions about recovered bodies and what is it that we get wrong about that 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 bioarchaeology is now putting right? Is it about race? Is it about gender? I mean you must be creating a lot of debate on things that people took as fact in the past that you are disproving today.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a huge debates going on at the moment, as you can imagine, um, particularly in in relation to race, um, really problematic work, and actually, you know, the discipline had its had has some really dark origins in terms of racial categorizations, and so it's therefore really the onus is on us to address. These problems and dispel a lot of these myths that have created uh, very real social problems or contributed to very real social problems within our society. So, certainly around race, but also sex. You know, um, we have a tendency when we're looking at archaeological sites and particularly burials, uh, when you're seeing. uh, very very rich burials, perhaps uh, if you're seeing a burial with jewellery, burial with weapons to reinforce those gender stereotypes uh, so we don't we tend not to interrogate them, instead we kind of reproduce the past in some kind of Victorian image of gender norms, which actually don't really have a much of a bearing on our, on our own interpretation no. of gender, um, but yeah so there's a lot of that that has gone on in the past, so for example uh, a lot of cemetery studies they would not necessarily look at the skeletons Um, they would just assign a sex based purely on the grave goods and they would do that for children and and adults as well.
1: And this comes from the 19th century this is when that that uh, you have an awful lot of male archaeologists obviously archaeology is emerging as a discipline in the 19th century actually often pushed by women and that's another story that's been forgotten and Is it then these male archaeologists that are, say, in Egypt and across the world deciding what looks feminine and what looks masculine and what's coming out of the ground? And that's where all of these problems come from
3: yeah yeah quite often and um it, it's quite interesting actually i was i was looking at a, a report that's i think from the the 1930s it was an anglo-saxon burial and um they were saying oh this individual has a a high forehead they look like a a philosopher or a statesman uh rather than a a warrior or a primitive person you know so these ideas about uh you know just cranial features are used to ascribe you know, behavioural characteristics, which is entirely odd. But yes, um, absolutely, in terms of those gender stereotypes, and assigning uh, people as male or female just on the basis of, of their burials, and not allowing when we do that, there's no point recreating the past in our own image. And you know, history is is, is littered with women subverting uh, gender stereotypes. And we we need to provide the space for those interpretations in the past.
1: Well, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you about the burqa skeleton, because this is a burial that was assumed to be male and has now been proved through bioarchaeology to be female. How important is it to really make people aware of your discipline so that these questions can be asked and give us a more accurate, accurate view of the past
3: i think it's really essential because again otherwise we're just allowing these assumptions to take hold and we're building up these pictures of the past that are inaccurate and actually don't allow the space Uh, for women (laughs) to to hold roles other than these very stereotyped roles. So um, with the the burqa burial, um, that was sexed osteologically as, as female. Uh, but again, the uh, the osteologist who who presented this information, who's, who's extremely experienced, you know, it, she wasn't re- necessarily believed. This is how strong the, the, the sort of biases and prejudices are. And it was really only with the DNA analysis and the publication of the DNA analysis in conjunction with the osteological evidence that, that allowed this sort of
1: reappraisal. Uh, so, sorry, 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 Becky, hang on. Hang on one second. So the expert at the scene of the burial, as it was uncovered, sexed and said very clearly, this is this should be seen as a female skeleton. And then the community, because of the grave goods, said, no, no, it's it's definitely male. And it was only through bioarchaeology being able to prove absolutely that this was a female ske- skeleton that the grave was reassessed and presented as a woman that's an incredibly powerful bias within a scientific community surely to ignore the female expert at the gravesite basically and and just go on on artifacts alone that's that's amazing to me
3: so the the, the bias is real and it, <laughs> it, 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 it continues and you know we don't fall it you know if we're looking at the skeleton if we're thinking about the skeleton and analyzing it, it the the features don't always very neatly fall into these male female categories the expression of sexual dimorphism so the skeletal expression of sexual dimorphism can be very variable uh, it's variable between populations and within populations and there is, that is because of a combination of different um, genetics diet environment activities that males and females are undertaking so you within any one um, skeletal sample that you're looking at quite often it's more of a range of expressions we're pretty good at, at, at Determining sex. So, in the case of the the Burka burial, um, the the bits of the skeleton that are, are the most useful for determining sex w- were present. Now, this skeleton was excavated in the 19th century, so it was. It, but it was, and it was assumed to be male based on the grave goods although the excavator at the time did observe that um, the, the bones were quite gracile and uh quite feminine looking and then that was kind of lost to history and then um, it was more recently re-evaluated um, and and found to be female i would like to think that it happens a lot less now uh that we we are believed more often now because i mean <laughs> what's the point
1: (laughs) what's the point of us of a scientist of an expert if you're not going to listen to them
3: absolutely absolutely
1: we spoke to professor judith yesh earlier and she absolutely expressed a huge air of caution in believing that the the excitement that many of us myself included feel over the ideas of female warriors being discovered had to be really be viewed with a lot of caution because it was a, a potentially a form of projection into the past and not allowing women at the time to be women but it seems very much that there's a whole field of experts of of bioarchaeologists who know absolutely that they are finding female skeletons that are then being dismissed because of the material objects the material culture that they're being found with so the urging for caution, whilst important, has to be set alongside the fact that there is clearly this implicit bias within the field you're working in. How do we correct that? How do we find our way through?
3: Yeah, I mean, the the implicit bias is is a massive problem. And we can see that clearly. And, and the Birka burial is a a classic case in point I mean this was this has been sort of described as a sort of ultimate Viking burial it was a rich burial it wasn't just a normal warrior burial it was a particularly rich burial and has been interpreted as a sort of military commander type and and then the only thing that's changed since then is that the sex of that burial has been reinterpreted and then, of course, that, the whole edifice crumbles and people say, oh, well, um, it must have been uh, maybe the wife of a <laughs> military commander. Or, or, oh, well, it doesn't mean that she's necessarily a warrior. She was just these are kind of proxy uh, grave goods. So it's really, it's really important that, you know, we're kind of interpreting ourselves in, in circles here. And it's really important that we allow the space for there to be women buried with weapons and men buried with with jewelry as well because I see that too in the past and you know it could be that these men or women held a particularly special um, status um, within their community so it's it's really important that we allow the space for these different interpretations um, you know we can identify the sex of skeletal remains not only by looking at the skeletons but there is dna evidence there's also a new technique um, where you can look at the proteins in tooth enamel um, and this is really good is great technique because it it's it's only minimally destructive and you can do it on children as well and uh, find the sex of children and you just it's always just a little acid etch that you take of, of the tooth so um, we're always looking for techniques that aren't destructive so so that's great and again that's really a very very reliable technique for determining sex so you have to if you are getting bur- burials of, of women with weapons burials of men with jewelry and that is coinciding with the biological sets that we're we're getting from all these techniques then you have to allow for the fact that was a biologically a male buried with jewelry and, and vice versa it doesn't mean um that all men within that community were buried with jewelry it could just tell us something more about the particular gender role that that individual had it doesn't necessarily tell us that that individual identified as a male or
1: female this is what I was going to ask you I mean we're talking about very definitive gender roles here as masculine or feminine is it that we also have to push even further and say we can't define gender roles in the past by what we believe them to be to to have been or to be today we have to allow for diverse gender roles to fit diverse skeletal evidence
3: yeah i think so i think that we absolutely need to allow the space for there to be individuals within any one society that may subvert uh, gender roles that were even traditional for that society um we know this is the case today this has always been the case and you know and this is really interesting facet of different cultures and we see this cross-culturally today you know in certain uh, countries there are three genders uh not two and we need to remember that you know when when I'm talking about the skeleton I'm talking about biological sex and we can think of gender as the cultural interpretation of that if you like um but actually it's not even that simple because gender roles so whether someone is undertaking very sort of warrior type activities or masculine activities will also have an impact on the on the way the skeleton looks Mm. and the food often the diet that people eat is often gendered as well in some societies so again that can affect the way that the bones look so there is this difference between biological sex and gender but they they are interrelated in terms of the way they can express themselves on the skeleton. So we need to make sure that our interpretations of these skeletons, of the materials, are much more nuanced and allow the space for this variation, not only in how people looked, but also in how they expressed their gender identity. And though that did not necessarily fall into this binary model, of masculine and feminine it quite often doesn't today so we can't just force people in the in the past into these binary boxes Um, i don't think that that's uh, very helpful in terms of our understanding of different societies in the past
1: i am i'm so intrigued by this because to know that there are these opportunities for exploration and for asking questions of of what of the things that you find seems to open up a very exciting field. There's an amazing story from the medieval period a, an amazing artifact a court record of a sex worker who is um is taken before the law courts and is discovered to be male and he they work both as a male and female sex worker and there's real surprise in the court records at this but that's a person who in their cultural society presented as whenever they chose either gender is it possible that if you were uncovering a person's skeleton who had that life that you would see you've talked about these gender diets and and that you would you would you'd be surprised by what you were finding because it wouldn't fit in in a in a neat box
3: Yeah, so I think there are some features that you could um, notice in a skeleton that maybe didn't conform to gendered expectations and uh, a key example I guess of this are uh, examples of perimortem trauma that indicates that perhaps a woman has been engaged in some kind of martial activities you know that they were fighting with swords so that kind of example is a case in point Um, I think um, you can identify um, women who have perhaps an anomalous diet compared to the other other females within her group and again once you identify these anomalies if you like if you can then look okay well was this woman buried in any kind of different way is there something about her burial that that makes her stand out too and I think what we're wanting to think about when we're we're looking at these burials is the the intersectional nature of identity we know that um A high status woman um, of a certain age might um, have um, a different identity to a lower status woman. Uh, So we need to think about these intersections as well, how they play out within the human body and how they're expressed in, in burial. And once we're, we're able to do this, we can come up with much more nuanced interpretations and, and actually much more interesting um, interpretations of the past. Um, I, I, there, are so, there will be so many burials out there that, are, that have been interpreted based on assumptions on grave goods, but for whom there hasn't been that deeper investigation of their skeletal remains. Um, and I think, you know, if, as more and more studies are being done, I think more and more really interesting secrets <laughs> about the past will be revealed and we'll find out much more about gender identities and, and how those gender identities changed over a person's lifetime, changed within a society and within a culture.
1: Because this implicit bias goes both ways doesn't it it's not just about female skeletons that are being uncovered but also what uncoveries that are thought to have been female but are turning out to be male I'm thinking of the lovers of Medina which is this beautiful pair of skeletons that were uncovered hand in hand and often thought to be a heterosexual couple but are now through bioarchaeology known to be two men and that's left us asking questions about what their relationship in life would have been
3: yes this is it it, it absolutely works w- works both ways as well and again these burials are really interesting for challenging these these assumptions and making us think um differently about the past um which is uh, as it should be um and i've looked at uh, i remember there's one burial that i looked at and it was a very with lots of jewelry and it was a very it was an unusual burial for the site so it was a feminine assemblage but it was unusual in terms of the feminine assemblages at that site because um, there were uh, the, the necklaces and everything was particularly rich. Um, and when I looked at more detail in that ske- at that skeleton, it, it, it was more masculine. Um, so, you know, it does work both ways. Um, but in the original report, it had just been reported as female. And again... We're, it, it, we're missing out if we yeah doing this we're missing out on the past we're really we're providing a real tunnel vision view and and that's um it's just not good practice it's not certainly not good science
1: so it's absolutely is a case of it's not what you see but what's inside works not just as a motto for life but also in understanding our, our the remains of our past Yeah,
3: and we're much better nowadays, you know, We're much more open, society is much more open to more fluid gender roles and people expressing their gender identity uh, in different ways. And this is fantastic. Um, But we somehow think that the past was sort of this very conservative place, you know, and that's not necessarily so, you know. So it's really good that we're moving in this direction of being uh, more open minded. Uh, to different lived experiences in the past in relation to sex and gender.
1: What a fascinating insight into the world of bioarchaeology. I still can't get over the fact Victorian archaeologists decided whether a grave was male or female based on what a person was buried with, and their own definitions about whether that should be a man or a woman. But as Rebecca said, history is littered with women subverting modern gender stereotypes. Our most recent past may have ignored the clear evidence that women held equally diverse roles as men, but that is changing, and as more grave sites are re-examined, I am certain more warrior women are going to be found. So there we are. Everything I said to you about the Vikings at the start of today's show might have been what we thought we knew, but turns out to be completely wrong. Not only were the Vikings themselves a wildly disparate and exciting set of peoples, they are far more diverse in their lives and their roles than we have ever given them credit for. One of the most exciting things about the new studies being done is that they challenge so much of what we accept as fact about the past. So the question I'm going to leave you with today is, how do we trust our history when the people writing it, both in the past and in the present, clearly have their own axes to grind? I think an answer here is that we always have to keep an open mind, question our sources, and take advantage of the new information scientific approaches can give us to challenge the status quo. Because that shouldn't frighten us, it should excite us. History is never set in stone, it is memory, it is ever-changing, and above all things, it is fun. And as long as you remain curious about the past, it is always going to surprise you. I'm off to learn how to be a Viking shield maiden. So for more information on this episode and all our other episodes of Not What You Thought You Knew, head to skyhistory.co.uk. And we'd love to hear who you think we should feature in a future episode. Get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag Not What You Thought or by tagging at History UK or at And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app. And finally, a big thank you to my guests Judith Yesh and Rebecca Goland. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr. Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, and our series producer is Sam Pearson. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from
3: Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.